0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I am aware every week as I read Scripture, as I meditate on Scripture, as I prepare for Sunday morning of the Trinitarian nature of our God, it surely separates us or separates our beliefs from every other uh, religion in the world. Three yet one. Um, So always good to be reminded of how important that doctrine is. In fact, when you think about it, every doctrine really flows from the Trinity. How can there be salvation without Jesus and without Jesus being divine, without Him being 100% God, 100%? All of the things that are difficult to understand, although we believe and we know deep down, we do get it, but it's pretty complicated when we try to articulate it to others. Well, that's that's... Actually, a, a pretty good introduction because today's text is really complicated. It gets a little easier after today, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. I do want to encourage you, just as Ricky has said, to check out the home groups. I've got a a name tag because I am one of the home group leaders. Our group is multi uh Age limit or age groups, we've, we've got older, we've got younger. It's a good thing because uh, the younger ones keep the older ones awake during the, our time together. And uh, the older ones say things that puzzle the younger ones. So it's a really interesting mix. But they are age group related, uh, life stage related, all kinds of different groups that we have available. So check out... And get around and see the different representatives of the home groups. And then also, if you are new to Grace, next weekend is a really good time for you to learn more about our church, how the Lord has shaped us, grown us, defined us, how it was established many years ago. On Saturday morning and then Sunday morning, Saturday morning from 9 to 12 a.m., we're going to have three sessions of our Grace Connection class Then Sunday morning from 9.30 to 10.30 in the back. And if you have not uh, attended a Grace Connection class, this would be a great time to do it. You'll find a sign-up sheet at our Next Steps table out in the lobby, or you can sign up online. And then last, I just want to mention, I thought really that this text was going to be a good place to talk about this, but it really turns out not to be. But I still want to say we're looking for volunteers for our first impressions team, <clears throat> so many times people come into the lobby. And they're not exactly sure what to do. They receive a bulletin. Well, somebody needs to be there to, to point them in the right direction. It's not that we're a huge complex here. You know, you can figure it out. But still, to be able to be greeted. And by the way, I just want to add to what Ricky said about home groups, a place to be known don't feel like if you go, you're going to be called on to read scripture or pray, something like that. You can take your time. You don't have to say a word. Just show up. It'd be a little weird if you show up and don't say one word the entire night, not even hello. But if that's what you want to do, you can do that, and it's okay. So get in the home group and discover the other half of what Grace Community Church is all about. Okay. Okay. let's get to today's message. Imagine someone invites you to a banquet. The leading dignitaries of the city and the state are going to be in attendance and there is rumor actually that a national figure might show up and you're pretty sure it's from the side that you go for in elections, you know? It's one of the most highly sought out invitations of the year for the residents of your city. The setting is exquisite and the meal is expected to be exceptional. Your well-connected neighbor has invited you to attend. There's only one catch. It's being held at the Buddhist temple. So can you go? You're a Christian, and this is going to be a. And your neighbor says, "Look, look, look! They're going to have this prayer uh, there, but it's no big deal. You, you know, in your heart, you're not worshiping Buddha. You just come as a Christian and enjoy the meal, the company. It's going to be a grand evening. You see the logic, but it just doesn't feel right. So, what should you do?" Here's another scenario. Suppose you have settled the question about whether you should eat in a Buddhist temple or not. And the answer is no. You've settled that. No, I'm not going to do that. But, but suppose you've also settled this question. You know, I can get out of Aldi a whole lot cheaper than I can get out of Food Lion even. And don't even talk about Harris Teeter. Aldi is my place. You know, I'm an expert at bagging it up and getting it out. I got quarters in my. But it's rumored that some of the meat comes from all uh, from the from the temples. But but Paul has said it's okay. Don't ask any questions. Just go ahead and get it, because of the God who created this earth and created all things for our benefit and enjoyment. You can understand that and don't. Worry about it when you buy the Aldi discounted meats and vegetables. Don't ask whether it was butchered at the temple or not. Okay, so it's okay for you to eat that kind of meat. But suppose an unbelieving neighbor invites you for a meal and several people are going to be there in attendance. And the steak is beautifully prepared I mean, there's this garlic butter that you're going to put on top of it. And then somebody says, well, you know, that steak was butchered at the temple. Now what do you do? I mean, it's okay for you to eat. The Lord has already said you can. But now you've got a dilemma. What should you do? Wouldn't it make sense? And by the way, most likely this is a believer who is saying, you know... That meat was butchered at the temple. Wouldn't it make sense to go ahead and eat the meat so that you don't offend your unbelieving neighbor who has invited you to this meal? Wouldn't it be better to offend a believer than an unbeliever? When someone brings it up, Scripture says you can't eat. Not because of your conscience, but because of their consciences. Now these are the kinds of questions that are going to be addressed and answered in today's text, 1 Corinthians 10:14 through 11:1. This is a weighty passage every single week it just keeps getting deeper and deeper into this topic that speaks quite loudly to all of the things that we think about as believers, but getting there is a little bit complicated. If you're here for the first day, don't judge what comes out of the pulpit on Sunday mornings based on today. It gets a lot easier next week when we back up to 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll explain that next week when we get there. Uh, so, let's get to the text. For our initial reading, I'm going to read the last verses of our text, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1. So if you would, please stand for the reading of the word. It is our custom as the scripture is read. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. And 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul, is written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter to the Corinth church and the people in that church. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. So again, if you're here for the first time, you might have guessed already that we're in a series in this New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And you'll see shortly that we are beginning in chapter 10, verse 14, right in the middle of an argument that Paul was making about the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But you know, this argument is not so much about eating meat as it is about loving Other people, both those who are saved and those who are not saved. Those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. It's a complex argument for which it would take half of our time to provide context. But if you're interested, the past several sermons are uh, online in both spoken and written uh, forms. The title of this series of messages for 1 Corinthians is Life in the Church. With the cross at the center. Because of the difficult nature of the material covered in this text, and because there are several issues addressed that are important, in principle anyway, to church life and private and the private lives of church members, and because of the importance of the principles that apply to so many of the issues about which Christians disagree today, I thought it would be helpful to go verse by verse to understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians, and then to allow the truths of the text to bring us to a place of decision at the end of the message. I don't mean that we're going to have an invitation, but this text calls us to response. By the way, when I was writing the sermon, and I said, because of all of these things, I thought it best that we go through the, message verse by verse, I knew that that would strike some people the wrong way, that, that that it would think, well, should the Holy Spirit lead you? Well, yes, absolutely. But the text deals with this very sort of thing. We are called to think and reason. The apostle, you read about the apostles over and over in, in uh, the book of Acts saying, it seemed best to us. We thought this was the thing we ought to do. You can see them using their minds. And in fact, sometimes they started to go here. It's not that the Holy Spirit always led them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit stopped them. And as Tim Keller says, one of the best ways to determine God's determine God's will for your life is closed doors. A lot better than open doors, right? You may have three or four open doors. But if a door is closed, well, guess what? That's not God's will. And sometimes we're... <laughs> we get in trouble when we try to kick it down and say, well, I know this is God's will because I feel a certain way. No, the Lord calls us to use our, 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 our minds to think through the ways of God and understand how He wants us uh, to live and decisions and how we are to make decisions. The issue at question in Corinth church was the appropriateness of eating meat that originated at pagan temples. Now, I will say this in review. Some of the meat was offered in sacrifice and, and, and served at these meals that were strictly for the worship of, of the idol. Some were sold in a restaurant annex that was connected, attached to the temple off to the side. The meat would be offered. They'd bring it in here. You'd get a really good deal on the, on the meal. And then a lot of it found its way to the markets. And so, should Christians partake? And Paul's definitive answer was, well, it depends. First Corinthians 10, 14 to 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In, in the past, it was one loaf of bread, they'd break off a piece, pass it around. One cup of wine that they would pass around. I took uh, communion at an Episcopal church in downtown Boston, famous church, Trinity Church, uh, years ago, and it's they serve you up front, they give you the bread, and then they give you the wine. It was a real, real deal, and I thought the guy was going to drown me. I mean, it was a really nice, you know, to to participate in that sort of communion, but. That's the way it was, except they didn't serve one another so much the the wine, but they would pass the cup from one to the other. And just think about how it signified the oneness of the body. Notice that Paul, who was often harsh in this letter, begins by reminding his readers that they were very dear to him and deeply loved I've said it before in these five weeks, but nuance and irony abound in this letter. As much of Paul's criticism was directed toward the elite in the church who were likely the only ones who would fully understand the extent of his criticism. The mere fact that there were elite at all in the church was the root problem. Since Jew, Jesus, I'm sorry, had broken down all barriers between Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and slave owners, educated and non educated, wealthy and poor, keep going. The issues that the Corinthians were dealing with should not have existed at all in the church. That's the point Paul was making in verse. 17, we are one, and the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. But the Corinthians were experts, and we're starting to see this really big time in our world today. The Corinthians were experts at baptizing worldly practices and bringing them right into the church without any change, really. Just throw a little bit of a spiritual language on what the world is thinking is the way we should live today, and call it Christian. Paul appealed to the common sense and the judgment of the strong believers at Corinth who had convinced themselves that they could eat meat that had been offered to idols at any place and at any time. But don't you know, verses 16 and 17, that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we bind ourselves to Christ, and He binds Himself to us. What does it mean when we partake of the Lord's Supper like we did last week and like we will do again next week? What does it mean when we take the bread and the juice? It means less than Catholics think it means. And it means more than most Protestants think it means. Especially evangelicals. Is it a memorial? Absolutely it's a memorial. But it's far more. There is a mysterious binding of believer to Christ and to one another. We bind ourselves to Christ and to one another. And he binds himself to us at this table. Paul is going to deal with the practice and meaning of the table more directly in chapter 11. But here the foundation is being laid for the subject at hand. Meat offered to idols. Verses 18 to 22. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar... What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No. An idol is nothing. But I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and... The cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So, once again, Paul appeals to reason. Consider. And once again, Paul appeals to the believer's heritage in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. Remember, Christianity is not an alternative to Judaism. It is the completion of God's plan for His covenant people. That's part of the argument here that I really don't have time to go into, but sometimes unbelievers associated Christians with Jews, and they knew the Jews were persnickety about eating meat that had been offered to idols. Uh, But Christians have their heritage or have their roots in the Old Testament with the Jewish people, but we have been made free in Christ, and so there are a lot of differences as well as similarities. We are God's covenant people, though, and we know that God is jealous of his people's affections. Now, when you think of jealousy, don't think of the petty jealousy that we're so all, often guilty of, and you've had it happen to you, right? You're really close with, a. you've got a good, good friend, and you're happy when he's happy, sad when she's sad, and it's just you've got this great relationship and then all of a sudden something happens and you find yourself, I don't like that. A little bit. Don't think of that kind of petty jealousy, but a human analogy probably would help too. Wives, if someone, especially a male, is mistreating you, how do you feel when your husband steps up and says, hey, don't talk to my wife like that? Don't you appreciate that kind of jealousy? Or husbands, if, if you're at home and, and, and people at work have really been mistreating you badly and your wife, you know, after two and a half, three hours of patient prodding has drawn it out of you, uh, you're grateful when she defends you. Just think of the benefits of God's jealousy for His covenant people. And as the world mocks us more every day, and as they call us haters and hate mongers, God is jealous for his people. He loves us at that level. So, Paul asks, is an idol anything? Uh uh-uh. uh. In 1 Corinthians 8 4, he's already declared, as did many of the Old Testament prophets, that an idol has no real existence. It's pretty funny when you're reading through the Old Testament. Talking about how crazy it is that a person will take the wood that he has and out of half of it he'll fashion a god and the other half he'll use to keep himself warm and and to cook his food. But then he bows down to this god that he has made, fashioned with his own hands and said, oh, deliver me, deliver me, protect me. Immediately after acknowledging this truth again, though, that an idol is really nothing, Paul assigns idols and idolatry to demonic activity. Although a stone or a wooden god fashioned by human hands is absurdly lacking divinity, it is no joke to participate in a meal. Offered to an idol because demons are behind idols and idol worship. And no matter how sophisticated we are theologically, even knowing that an idol is nothing, we must not participate in a sacrificial meal because, in so doing, we bind ourselves to demons and we can't be, we can't have a foot in both worlds. Do not miss in this paragraph the exclusive nature of Christianity. Idol worshipers know the significance of a sacrificial meal. Believers should know that any meal they eat that is associated with worship must come from this table, from the Lord's table. We know that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not one path to eternal life. When someone says, but don't you think that people worship God under different names? Our God has one name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, he's got several names, but if we do not know him and acknowledge him and worship him as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're not worshiping the same God as other people do. So when people want to play with this, you need to be certain in your own mind. And and in fact, if you're already certain of that, And if you lean into this truth, it makes the rest of life a lot easier. Well, easier up here. Easier in your heart and in your mind, but it's not necessarily easier life for you. But so much easier if you say, Jesus is the only way. God's created order, as we'll talk about next week, is the only proper way for us to live in this world with an understanding and, a, and support of God's created order. Paul, all through this text you see Paul saying, I, I don't please myself, I seek to please others. Jews, Greeks, very different types of people. And he doesn't mean that he's trying to please them in order to benefit himself. He's trying to please them so that they might look at the cross and trust Jesus. So as you become, as our land becomes more and more skeptical of God's existence and especially of Jesus' role as Savior, it's easier to walk away if you want to. But if you're in church, you need to be all the way in. This is serious and we need to live as though we believe it. Verses 23 to 26. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth It's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now perhaps you can see the difficulty of going verse by verse through this passage because it seems like every verse is dependent on a claim made four verses later or two chapters back. It's all one big argument. Also, you wouldn't know this without help, nor would I, but when Paul says all things or lawful, you'll notice that it's in quotation marks. That's because this was a saying that was repeated quite frequently in the church at Corinth, especially by those who wanted to justify any any and every kind of action. It would be the equivalent of someone questioning you about whether certain activities were permissible for Christians, and you responding, believers are free in Christ, believers are free in Christ, to just about any question. I think about this all the time. When I go up to a um, a fast food counter, especially, and I'm paying for the meal, my mother would always say, senior citizen discount, senior citizen discount. I mean, man, she was happy to get it. They were giving it to me long before they should have been giving it to me. I'm just going to say... I don't know about the eyesight or the judgment of some of the people in this particular area. But when you are so predictable, you think it's okay to do this or that? Well, of course it is. We're free in Christ. Paul's saying, how can you do that? Use your common sense. Judge for yourself. Consider all that's been written for us. Yes, Paul says, all things are lawful for believers. But that's not the point. Is this going to help or hurt my weaker brother who struggles with a sensitive conscience and who has trouble discerning what is acceptable and not acceptable? Uh, This argument has already been thoroughly covered in previous chapters. But just after telling the Corinthians not to participate... In meals that are located at the temple, Paul now goes on to say, whatever is sold in the markets, go ahead and buy and eat without any investigation as to its origin. He bases his argument on Psalm 24:1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This meat doesn't belong... To idols, this meat doesn't belong to demons. The Lord is the giver of all good things that we enjoy. So eat without asking any questions. He continues his instruction in verses 27 to 30. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Fairly detailed instructions, wouldn't you say? In verse 27, you might respond, Okay, good to know. I can accept this dinner invitation without asking awkward questions. Then in verse 28, one can only say, Awkward. Uh. So you have to understand that before television, before internet, did, did life exist before the internet? But before all of that, <clears throat> people love to get together and have meals together. We question whether we should go to a home group because oh, my life is so busy and I just don't know if I've got time. This was a big social event when a person in the neighborhood would invite all of the people of the neighborhood over for a meal. So you can see uh, the conflict here. And when Paul says, you go there, don't worry about it. Just eat and enjoy it and have a good time. Just like Jesus did when he ate with sinners. Have a good time. But then when someone says, well, I I think this meat was offered at the temple. Then what do you do? First of all, who do you think Paul anticipated would ask such a question? Would it be a Christian who is having trouble with his conscience, or would it be an unbeliever who knew about the Jews and Christians are probably the same way and out of courtesy say, Hey, I just want you to know? Well, it could be either way. I would guess it's more a Christian who would say that. And again, Paul tells us to be willing to offend an unbeliever before we believe we offend a believing brother. We would think, man, you ought to understand. You ought to understand, Christian, that I'm trying to win this person for Christ. I'm not worshiping an idol by eating this meat. But no, if the Christian is struggling, you got to give preference to him or her. So don't eat it. And even if it offends your host, you don't want to offend your brother. In verse 29, Paul states that legalists shouldn't be able to challenge his freedom in Christ and tell him how he must live so that they will not be offended. I remember, look, I went to Tennessee Temple back just after I'd gotten saved. I went from hippie to the most conservative things, this side of Bob Jones. It's very, it was very much like Bob Jones. And Bob Jones was a far different place back in the day than it is now. But, man, they were conservative. I felt like I had stepped... This was 1972. I thought I'd step back into the 50s. I really did at the school. Hair was like this. And one day, one of the professors said in one of my classes... I I really couldn't believe it. He said, I was robbed of a blessing in chapel today. The young man who sang was a very good singer... But he had hair that was just over his ears. I'm like, really? you got to be. Look, those kind of people ought not to be the ones who determine what is acceptable and not acceptable in the church. This person is most likely saying, I just don't. Was offered at the temple, and I don't feel good about eating it. It's not, hey, this food was offered at the temple, so what are you gonna do about that, Mr. Freedom in Christ? It wasn't that kind of thing. It was a person who was really struggling. And Paul was saying, I, I can't tell him, oh, eat it and don't worry, and then later his conscience bothered him. Romans 14:23 says, if we eat, you gotta eat in faith. Because anything that is not in faith is sin. So, as believers we understand that the earth is the Lord's. Looking back to verse 26, which quotes Psalm 24, the traditional Jewish prayer of thanksgiving it was offered at meals so it's fine to eat the meat if everyone is okay with it gregory lockwood says this about this activity quote the christian practice of saying grace before and after meals testifies that our food and drink are not something we offer to god but a gift we receive from his hand so many times in pagan temples food is offered to the idol, we give thanks because God has given to us this good thing. So if this passage has been difficult to understand, clarity suddenly bursts through in the final verses of our text, or at least I hope it does for you. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, if you do, but understandable. If you don't, for the sake of other people... Eat, drink, do whatever you do to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews who are ridiculously strict or Greeks who are ridiculously not or to the church of God. Ah, there's the in-between, the church of God. Give offense to no one. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not as a man pleaser, Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Back to 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Well, 17, 18 along in there through the end of the chapter. Be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Give glory to God. Do your best to let people see Christ, not you care enough about others to find ways to give all people as unobstructed view of the cross as is possible. In Paul's day, Gentiles were put off by unnecessary legalism and Jews were put off by unthoughtful displays of Christian freedom. Thus, Paul said, do not live as one who thinks everyone must adjust to your way of thinking be nimble, be flexible without sinning. Most of all, be concerned about the souls of all that glory might be given to God. So to summarize chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul pointed to Jesus in 11.1 as his motivation for sacrificing his own comfort and for his own Spirit-led choices to put others above himself as an example for all to follow. Paul's choices were made for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the lost. And all was done, we now see, to the glory of God. So what is our response? How are we to apply uh, the lessons of chapters eight through ten of 1 Corinthians, with special attention given to today's text, verses fourteen of chapter ten through eleven one. Three thoughts that are not that are every bit as much information as application, but information that should shape our habits, which will shape our convictions and behavior. The other way works as well. Our convictions and thoughts will shape our habits first i am called i must work to understand where i fit into god's story rather than require him to fit into my story my story it man it's what it's all about right Excuse me, hold it right there. Everybody smile. To say these last five messages have been challenging for me would be an um, understatement. But accepting a challenge of another sort when I was a young man, the challenge to read through the Bible every year, which the Lord has allowed me to do with a few exceptions, has helped me more than I can say and probably far more than I can ever No. Many of you have told me often that you far prefer to read just a few verses and meditate on them than to read larger sections of Scripture. But why choose? Do both. This year, more than any other, I have sat down with the Word and read large chunks of one particular book. I read Leviticus In two or three sittings. I read the book of Acts this week. Just in two or three sittings. And the benefit. Now now the reason I did that. Is because I'm way behind on my Bible reading for this year. But, But the benefit of it. Is that I see things. That I've missed. Even just reading through every year. The Bible is. Look if all we ever get about the Bible. Is starts and stops. And just little bits here and there. We're missing the big picture. We're missing the big story. And when you read through the Bible every year, patterns (laughs) emerge that remind you that people come and go under God's loving and sovereign care. But that he will always get his glory. But his glory is for the benefit of his people. Do you, have you forgotten the, the, the doctrine of glorification? We will be glorified fully when we see Him. And if we weren't glorified, we couldn't stand in His presence. But we're going to share in that glory, not as divine beings, but as those that God has brought into the family. Because Paul was writing to people whom he expected to know Old Testament scriptures... His arguments were complex and nuanced. And so no wonder Paul said, we must not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Second, Jesus, others, and you. It really is that simple. Now, a lot of people use this simplistically, but it really is... That's simple. And, and look, I admit that there's not a lot of joy in 1 Corinthians. But Paul lays out the perf- perfect formula for the Corinthians to grow to a much better place. And while the formula, formula is simple, it is not easy. Be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. Paul rep- Repeatedly gave examples of his willingness to forego his own preferences to serve others. Both his Christian family and the lost. Why? Why did he talk about that so much? Because this bunch was so far from glorifying the Lord that they not only needed rebuke. They needed examples to be able to find their way back to the right place. Did it work? Indeed it did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and I realize there's other correspondence between Paul and the people, in between. But he said, "'I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you. I knew you would respond to what I was saying.'" that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And then Paul went on to list all the positives that resulted from their repentance. Jesus... Others and you in that order. It really is that simple. Last, doing all to the glory of God is not only a commitment for the moment, but it is a mindset that radically alters the trajectory of one's life and continues along that path. As Mike Calhoun often says, decisions don't change your life. Mike, for years, was with Word of Life and at the at the island where the teenagers were, the older teenagers were. And Mike would say to teenagers, decisions don't change your life. Discipline does. I saw this over and over at TVR. Some of you have heard it a few times, but I'll tell it again. On Friday night at the campfire, we did our best to not stoke the emotion so that, Kids would make emotional decisions. But emotion goes with camp, you know. You can only do so much. And so kids would say, last year when I was here, I committed my life to the Lord and it was so good for about two weeks and then I just sort of, but this time I really mean it. To hear that over and over and every once in a while, kid would say, you know, I committed last week to have a quiet time every day or last year when I was here. And the Lord has helped me do it. It's really made a difference in my life. And I'd say, and I would always ask, so are you in a better place now than you were last year? And they said, oh, definitely so. Not not that the Christian life is devoid of emotion. But decisions are often emotional. Discipline. Day in, day out. Year in, year out. That's What fully changes our lives. This past week, we lost the queen. And as many of you would understand, that's big news in our home. I'm married to a member and a servant of the commonwealth. Allison's affection for Queen Elizabeth II, though, was well-placed. The world has truly lost a great servant of the people. And I am convinced as much as I can be. And I have been for a while. We have lost a believer who is now with the Lord. And what a contrast to the me, 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 me of our time. The commitment she made to the Lord and to the British people. Almost 71 years ago when she was 25 was lived to the full, as far as I can tell, every day of her life. I don't mean to exalt a person by the mention of the queen. But she was such a a sterling example of sacrifice and service that is rarely seen today. And as with Paul, we should take notice. Commitments are hard to come by in our day. Because so few of us are willing to make a promise that we're not certain that we can keep. And in fact, most of us are unwilling to make commitments because something better might come along. That is antithetical to Christian thinking. Something better is never going to come along. But this life to which we are called that has the blessings of eternity stretched out before us and the peace that doesn't make sense in a a world that is heading in the wrong direction. It's not an easy life. Good news. It is Christ in you who will cause and enable you to live this way by the Spirit of God. And this good news though comes with a challenge. We will not attain such a life without a daily commitment to God's glory and to others. This day may our lives be yielded to Him. Let's pray. So as the worship team comes forward to once again focus our hearts on Jesus, I wonder if you would, in your heart, Just pray something like this. Lord, I confess that I live for my comfort, my convenience, and for my glory far too much, especially as a child of God. Please forgive me. This day, at the direction of your word, and with the help of your Holy Spirit, I commit myself to your glory. I pledge with your help to put the concerns of others ahead of my own concerns, whether it be my brothers and sisters in Christ or those who don't know Jesus. May I seek not to offend either believers or unbelievers. May Jesus shine through me. Lord, I am weak and I need your help but on this day I commit myself to you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.